Hey everybody, welcome to the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, an iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Alan Nevins. And I'm Joey Santos. And today we're going to be talking about memoirs and biographies. We're going to talk a little bit about the process from idea to publication, as there are many avenues one can take. And we're going to be talking about usually historical figures that have had great books written about them, some you've heard of and some you may not have. Joining the conversation today, we have two separate guests that we're really excited about. One is author James McGrath Morris. He wrote the critically acclaimed book, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the First Lady of the Black Press. He's going to give us some great insight into how and why he wrote this incredible book and tell us about this amazing and unknown woman. And I'm excited, really excited to have Philip Smith, my best friend since I was a kid, since we were kids, we were seven years old when we met. He's going to be joining the podcast today. And literally, he's a walking encyclopedia. He can tell you pretty much everything about anything. So it's going to be exciting to see and listen to his take on this particular subject, as well as many others, which we'll be covering. So grab a drink. Let's dive in. Let's do it. And Philip is here. Philip Smith, your great friend for many, many years. And my, as we said, my friend once removed. Yep. My good friend, because I've known him as long as I've known you. Correct. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. And he has joined us today because he has an insight on just about everything. I remember when I first met him, I kept going, is this guy for real? How does he know so much? We were little kids and we'd play games like, you know, at home with my father, you know, like Trivia Pursuit or, you know, whatever those things are. And then in the middle of it, my dad would say, you know, give Philip a call. If he got, let's see what his answer is because he was stumped with something. And then Philip would, it was almost like how they do now on what's that TV show where you have a line, a, Who a wants lifeline? To be a millionaire. Yeah. Right. Well, a lifeline. Yeah. Right. So Philip was always a lifeline with every question. Okay. Let's call Philip. And then nine out of 10, although he'll say 10 out of 10 is always right. So, but even when we have conversations, it always, uh, amazes me because I'll say, well, you know, how long has so-and-so been dead or some actor, you know, how long? And he's then, got the and dates. He's got the dates, not just the year. He, he knows the, he the, knows the let's corpse give him a temperature. Test. Let's test him. Let's test okay, him on let's something. Test. Let's okay, pull let's something out of a hat. Uh, should we say something presidential? Who was the fourth president of the United States? The fourth president of the United States was James Madison, who wrote the Constitution. Okay. But his he father his father was murdered by slaves. His father was. Yes. Oh, was he? His father was a slave owner? Oh, well, yes. Virginia. Montpelier. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What was his wife's name? Dolly. Dolly Madison. Dolly Madison. Yes. And she made cupcakes. She was a baker. Well, see, <laughs> no, Thomas Jefferson discovered ice cream, creme glacée, when they, they were all in Paris. Who did? Thomas Jefferson. He discovered So he brought cream. back the recipe. Dolly made it famous. Wait a minute. They didn't have ice cream in... England before they came? No, it was really, it was called creme glacé, made you know, with ice from the ice houses and, and cream and the flavorings, blah, blah, blah. Sure. French. So Thomas Jefferson brought it back. And but that's Madison, what I mean. So before, the English didn't have this. No, well, the English, no. You know, the English are kind of slow there. Yeah, they, they, they boil. They boil everything. That doesn't uh, yeah, work well. And they had clotted cream. Doesn't work well with ice cream. <laughs> no, they had clotted cream. So True. yeah. So Dolly Madison introduced that at parties and soirees in Washington, D.C. And everyone went wild. Well, so we have her to thank for our obsession with ice cream. See, and it's going to be full of these little bits of knowledge. These are great dinner party conversations. These are great things to know in general because we always just skim over things and we forget that there's depth behind every person, everything in history. Let's find out what everything is about. So, Joey, what's the cocktail of the week? 
Well, I decided, you know, last night I had a client, so I did a dinner party for them, and it was sort of an Italian theme. So the client had said to me, but my favorite drink is a margarita. And I said, well, that's not very Italian. You know what I mean? So I decided, well, I'm going to go for the challenge. Italianize it. Italianize it, yeah. So what I did was I created the margarita using blood orange, which is very much an Italian fruit that they use in a lot of different recipes and and cocktails and and just drinks in in general. So I created the margarita using the blood orange, and it was absolutely delicious. It was – and the presentation was gorgeous, and it knocked you on your ass. So it was great. So I recreated that for us today, for us to share this morning to start our day with a blood orange margarita. And what – generally what's in it? Basically the same concept as the margarita, the good tequila, of course – my client had beautiful um, orange trees in the backyard. It happened to be blood oranges, so that was perfect. So I used the juices from that. I added a little bit of Pellegrino to give it a fizz at the end. That's just at the end. And then your limes, some sugar. Um, well, you could use sugar. I tr- I wanted to use agave, so I made the, the syrup and used that. And then put it all in the blender with some ice, strained it, put it in a martini glass, dropped a sprig of mint and a slice of blood orange, and there you go. So you'll, you, you tell me once you try it. All right. Once you hiccup a few times. I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should jump in then about Larry King because Philip will have all sorts of things to add to that conversation. Yeah, let's talk about Larry so King. He, we he, just he, lost. We yes. lost him oh, about two weeks ago. Yeah, about two weeks ago. At 87, I think he was. 87 yeah. years old, And I yes. didn't realize at first when I heard that he had died, I thought, oh, that's terrible. But at 87, it's not well, a huge surprise. Yeah, but, but he had a lot of health issues as well. So, I mean, with that, he did, but I didn't realize he actually died of COVID. Or, you know, what do they call it, uh, repercussions Re- from? Yeah, I, th- I think from the after, because he, is, he was hospitalized almost a month ago with COVID. Right. And I, right before the holidays, he went home. And so I'm sure, of course, you know, he was 87 years ago. old. My gosh. Yeah. yeah God bless. Well, he was a huge contributor to the news and at a different time when it was done differently. Yeah. Exactly. Well respected. And there was guy. truth behind it. And what was his line, Altoona? You know, good evening, Altoona. You're on live. Yeah, oh, remember that? Right. Wasn't that his line? And how many times you could see him every morning at Nathan Al's on Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills? Yep. He and his little group there, mm-hmm. they would have breakfast there every morning. And if you had a breakfast meeting, there they were, those four guys. And Milton Burrell sometimes was with them in the old, in the old days. Yeah. 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 Mm hmm. Uh, last year, I went in with my client, Ricky Smiley, to do an interview, mm-hmm. and Larry King was not really aware of sort of who he was. He had done a little research, and I cannot tell you how uh, polite's the wrong word. Uh, he was gracious, and he was really genuinely excited to sort of meet Ricky and talk to him about his career and learn something about this guy. And maybe that's what made him go for so long, is that he really took an interest of who this person was, where their career started, how they got to where they were, because there's a story for all of those people. He said that in an interview that they replayed since his passing, that he tried to go in not knowing anything and to learn while he was talking to the subject. Oh, that makes sense because he so had a I lot think, of questions. I think you saw that. Ricky, so, yeah. yeah, and that was one of one of this quote-unquote secrets. Well, most people that he did interview will come around uh, now and say, looking back at him, how he was one of those people that allowed you to be who you were and to express yourself and have the conversation that you want to have without pushing and prodding. And so it made it, made it very interesting and also made him very well-liked. 
as well as respected. So, And Larry King also did the thing that a lot of people don't do anymore. He listened. Correct. Yeah. And Just he by was listening. informed and he was good enough, if he didn't know something, to shut up. Well, you knew he was listening because he responded to what the person was saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not forget, when that show was on, you know, if you were doing Larry King Live, it was a big deal. And everybody tuned into that show to watch you do your thing. And, you know, it was like, at that time, it was like being on the cover of Vanity Fair or any of those big outlets. Yeah, no, the Larry King interview was was, was quite um, yeah, coveted. Yeah, exactly. Well, what else are we coveting today? What have you been watching on television? I have been, a, a, God, for me, it was a little bit of a slow TV week. I've been doing some home renovation. Well, not renovation, Depot. redecorate. <laughs> you know how many trips? You've been doing home. T- I know. God. You know what the worst was is during at the beginning of the pandemic when you had to wait in that line to get in and you'd go in and you'd bite everything and then you'd get home and you'd go, oh my God, I forgot the damn whatever. And you'd and go you back and stand back, in that line again. But have you watched I, Pretend It's a City? Have you seen that on Now Netflix? that I did watch. That's the uh, documentary about Fran Leibowitz? Yes. With Fran Leibowitz. And she's series. with um, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. Yeah. It's hilarious. We, we viewed, we didn't watch it last night, but we, you know, we saw the little trailer for it. Yeah, I like her. She's, uh, I like that kind of humor, that very dry. And, you know, when we were kids, Philip, we, we lived in New York as, as little kids. That's where we met and became friends. We grew up there until, we saw we were, so many until I was like about that. 12. And um, so that energy and that thing we're so familiar with. And she's the quintessential New Yorker. I mean, the way she looks at people, the way she looks at life, the way she even looks at the sidewalk. Exactly. is such a New York way, you know. And she's got that that dry humor, which I love. And then, you know, she's just full of quips and knowledge and you know she's a humorist so she's got me humored i can yeah, tell you yeah that. great a great curmudgeon if there yeah totally oh one. very yeah a great we know curmudgeon. a few of those too. yes we do <laughs> <laughs> what about um have you watched this show bridgerton visually stunning yeah it's a it's a treat for the eyes okay but okay but i heard the star was a treat for the eyes too. well everyone loves that and you know you understand it you know hot very good looking it's steamy it has all this all the sex and drama that that any kind of soap opera would want but it, i know the reason the question was posed is because of that whole all of a sudden there's a queen of england who is of color and um oh, some of this kind of bothers me because they addressed it there was a line on the show where it was addressed and oh in the show in the show were they addressed that the queen is black yeah oh in what way well the queen addresses it by saying that before her marriage to the king things were one way and now they're another and it's because of the marriage and okay it, it 1840s london it it just wouldn't fly in my mind and you know, we have done this before with casting. Diane Carroll was successful in playing Norma Desmond in Canada in the 90s. And uh, she was wonderful in the role, but it was not addressed. They never addressed the ethnicity. And everyone followed the story without a hitch. And I, why couldn't they have done that here? Oh, just to play it? Yeah. Yeah, I only saw one episode so far, and, and this isn't the only show that's done it. And while I looked at it, and it, it's clearly, you know, fiction, and it's got the comedy edge, so you could sort of get away with whatever you want because it's not supposed to be real. But it is a little disarming when you watch it, and you're like, oh, wait, that's the Queen of England, because your mind is not set to see the Queen of England as black. Not because she's black, but because the Queen of England is white. And so you're like, wait a minute, that's the Queen of England? Why can't we find... 
stories and history relating to people of color and that were real, that really existed and really lived. And let's find their stories. What are your peers saying? Because it's, you know, one thing for Joey and I as, as, as white guys to make a comment about that, of how we see something through our eyes. But what are your peers sort of feeling? And do you think that it changes the perspective of a young black child who's looking at this going, oh, look at all these black people that were count and countesses and earls in the 1800s. Is it do they, were, do they pick that up as some torp reality or no? I don't I think sometimes it confuses them to a point, but unfortunately I think it makes them overlook the real things. You know, there's a great story of Alexander Dumas. Why, they've never told this story of he or his son because they were of mixed blood. The father was a general in Napoleon's army. So therefore in France he was considered, you know, hierarchy and then the son is the is the author of stories that you know are in all of our cultures the three musketeers man in the iron mask all of those those are alexander dumas stories that's those that's a great story of a person of color in a time when people of color were not in those in those areas, yeah. but it's never been told. I mean, when I went to school, of course, they didn't even teach any of the black history, right? You never, it was just not part of it. It was all about George Washington and whatever. Sure. And it seems to me, if you're gonna do that on TV, you know, these kids should know that's not how the world was. Correct. And why it needs to change, right? Right, exactly. And not everything in black history has a negative connotation. We need to move away from that. No, but why don't they talk about Dumas? Even in school, of when course. they talk about literature, they talk about the stories, but they never go into the person. The, the person. person. Yep. So last week, we asked a lot of our wonderful listeners to write in any questions that you may have for us. And one question that came in happens to tie into our theme this week. So I want to thank you all for sending them in. By the way, they're all anonymous, so you don't have to worry about us, you know, outing you or anything <laughs> for your question. But uh, we'll do that on Facebook. Yeah. So and the question is, <laughs> and somebody asks us, how does a memoir get written? That's a fantastic question I'd like to know, Alan. Well, we have lots of answers to that question. We do. We have lots of answers. There's always the commercial side of how do you pick a subject. You know, James is the perfect guy for this because he likes to find these obscure figures. You know, if you say you want to go do a biography of, you know, Tom Cruise or President Trump or whatever it is, there's a lot of commercial aspects to that. Everybody's going, oh, that, you know, a lot of people will want that and mm -hmm. they'll buy that. So the publisher doesn't need to be convinced to do it. James likes to find these figures that are important, but maybe not necessarily on everybody's mind. They're not a pop culture figure or they're not somebody that everybody's talking about on a daily basis. Or a household word. A or household brand. name. Yeah. And so those are a little more difficult, but he, you know, he likes to pursue them and he does a great job. And there is an audience there. It's just not a, a massive audience. And it's too bad because people tend to read the stuff that's a little more sort of commercial and pop culture -y and not, and yeah, fluffy and not the more important books. Once you pick the subject, you know, then there's a lot of research to be done and you interview a lot of people. And obviously you try to get into the people who who know something. In fact, in our, it's not unlike we were talking about with Sean and Emma Hepburn about this documentary about their mother. And if you remember, I said, did these people know her? Because they're talking about her and making decisions without even knowing this woman. And it's the same thing. you got to go talk to people who know something about them. You can't just make it all up or say, oh, I read it here or it was in a, you know, 
was in BuzzFeed or whatever, yeah. you got to go do original research. So this must have taken years. For this particular book? For the... Eye on the Struggle? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It took him a couple of years, mm -hmm. if I recall. Yeah, I mean, it's not a thin book. This no, is a, it's this not. This is a big, well-researched book. And this is a woman that had many layers many to her layers. life and career and, and thoughts and convictions. Everything that she brought to the table just didn't come out of, you know, out of the sky. It's a chronicle from, of the entire movement of the 20th century. I mean, literally, step by step, a chronicle. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to James McGrath Morris. Welcome, James. Glad to be with you. We have a few questions, but they are major questions. What I would like to know is why do you think so few people know about Ethel Payne? So few people know about her because of, say, a hangover or a legacy of segregation. When Ethel Payne did her work as a reporter for the Chicago Defender, and I should preface this by explaining to folks, the Chicago Defender isn't merely a Chicago newspaper. It was a national newspaper, like the New York Times wasn't merely a New York City newspaper. It was a newspaper circulated around the country. But this country was deeply segregated in the 50s. Well, actually, when the Chicago Defender started at the beginning of the century, all the way up through the 50s, they had universally black readers from around the country. White folks were not reading the Chicago Defender. She became the single most important civil rights reporter for the Chicago Defender. But her work was behind the curtain of segregation. White Americans knew nothing about what was in the Chicago Defender. Um, the, they were reading the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington, the, uh, Washington Post, papers like that. So her work was hidden, and it remained hidden, because um, when integration occurred in the press, the best black reporters were essentially lured away from the black press and went to work for the major newspapers, and Ethel Payne's contribution remained hidden from the public. But she was one of the main reporters, journalists, that was writing about Martin Luther King and what he was doing in the South, correct? Certainly, she was among the first reporters on the scene during the Montgomery bus boycott when the name Martin Luther King, if it appeared in a newspaper, was often by the initials M.L. King. Um, they weren't or just referring to him as a, as a religious figure. And so she saw the story as being terribly important. And when she went to write about it, black readers around the country were hearing Basically, if you think of the, uh, the civil rights struggle as a warlike thing, she was reporting from the front lines of desegregation back to readers for whom it really mattered. And as a result, she also actually influenced the general media's understanding of civil rights. There are moments in my book and in the story of Ethel Payne where white reporters came down to places like Montgomery and they knew nothing about the subject. So uh, black reporters were helping the white reporters, often filling in things. So when white liberals in Washington, D.C. opened up their papers the next morning, they were often seeing copy that had been shaped by information provided on the side by Ethel Payne. So here's the big question. How much did Ethel Payne have to do with people knowing who Martin Luther King was and his ongoing success of being who he was? She was instrumental in getting Martin Luther King's message across to black readers. But her greater contribution to the civil rights movement actually occurred 
before Martin Luther King became prominent. And that's when she was a reporter in Washington with the Eisenhower administration. She was one of three blacks among 200 so reporters at the press conferences, which were regularly held. And by asking questions of Eisenhower on topics that none of the white reporters were asking, such as, would you be willing to desegregate interstate bus travel? She was able to put those issues on the national agenda because this was a period where press conferences were printed verbatim in newspapers and press conferences matter. They were policy that the president was issuing. So as a result, by bringing questions of interest to the freedom struggle, to the president of the United States in a public forum, caused the federal government to pay attention to these issues and in many ways helped set the stage for the civil rights movement in the 60s. And famously at one point, she asked a question about civil rights, a very specific policy question of the president. And of course, when asking these questions, she had to educate the president as well as the press because they knew nothing about these topics. And the president got really irritated at her and rose up in a sort of military stature and said to her, I don't know where you get off asking these kinds of questions about a special interest. And in that one moment, he had equated the black freedom struggle to something like the farm lobby. And the whole room fell silent and the white press got it. And it really changed the tone of everything. So one of the things that Ethel Payne learned about journalism is not the journalism we see practiced today where you get two talking heads on TV yelling at each other or, or you know, without voicing extreme views. She was actually using the traditional power of journalism, which is one, to illuminate the dark recesses of society that people weren't seeing, but two, to bring questions to people in power who were unwilling to answer them and have been able to ignore them. And so when Martin Luther King started his work, Ethel Payne was certainly in his line of sight as somebody who had already advanced the cause, and she, he knew about her. And so when she came to Montgomery and places like that, she was perhaps the most recognized black reporter that he could see in the audience or in the background or at the church meetings. So he used her in that sense to get the word out for him. So yes, she was a conduit in that sense. It also created a real problem for Ethel and other black reporters because we know now about uh, more about Martin Luther King's private life as well as the private life of another fair number of civil rights leaders. And it's not always complimentary. I mean, all leaders have clay feet. And it put her in a very awkward position because at times she and others knew things that, if reported, could diminish the standing of the, of the movement. And that was perhaps the hardest journalistic jump she had to make in her career. Very hard one to do. I see Joey's raising his hand. He's desperate to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, my curiosity is what, what compelled you to um, seek her out and write, this, write her story? Well... When I ran across it doing research to write a book proposal on a, yet another journalist, I came across her and I figured what I'd read in Wikipedia and things like that. This was a story that was long overdue to be told in a big way. And I presumed somebody was already doing it. But, you know, there are ways to find that out. I checked the archives and nobody had touched her papers. In fact, some of the papers were still unavailable. Um, and the big decision I had to make was, could I, as a white guy, write a book about a black female a civil rights reporter from the 50s who grew up in relative poverty, and I grew up in, you know, some form of affluence in comparison. And I found in Ethel Payne the answer to that question. She ended up covering in Congress some of the most rabid, awful segregationists. She sat down to interview them. And instead of, um, of being objective, she said, I can't be objective. These people are trying to keep me, you know, chained up. 
I can be fair. And that's the way I approached it. A biography is very much like a portrait painting in that we bring to the canvas all of our own culture, all of our own upbringing. And my canvas of Ethel Payne would be is very different than that, let's say, written by a 30-year-old African-American female. But what I would say is my painting was fair and accurate, uh, and I think she would have recognized that. There's another thing that I found really fascinating about my, my travel, being a white guy writing about hers. I remember I drove to Louisiana to interview one of her friends, and she reached across the table at lunch and patted my hand and said, it's just so cute. I was almost offended. I thought, what does she mean, so cute? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, to see you get so worked up about shit that we had to put up with all of our lives. And it dawned on me that, yes, through between the sentences in my book is an irritation and anger that perhaps if I had been raised as a black person and forever subjected to, I might have had a very different tone in my book. But I was outraged. So when I portrayed her walking to school in Chicago, and kids throwing stones at her, there's a, there's a tone, a choice of words that I used. So whoever writes a biography brings all of those things to bear in the work. Um, and, and I think I did a fair and honest job with her. Well, I think that's a super interesting point you raise because I don't think people, when they read a book, think about who wrote it and what that person's agenda is when they write it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you read a biography of somebody, you f figure, oh, I'm getting the facts and I'm getting, you know, the story and that's the story. And I don't think people realize that the person who writes it changes that story based on their own insight and their own opinion. And also the maybe the way that we see it. And we can't really look through a black person's eyes. Washington, D.C. was a deeply segregated city. So when she got up in the morning, she had to plot how was she going to go to the bathroom right. during that day on Capitol Hill. She and um, the NAACP lobbyists would often walk across you know, parts of Capitol to get from one meeting to another. And Southern segregationist senators would bump into them as if they you know, uh -huh. weren't there, you know, yeah, that, sure. that thing. So um, she might have been terribly famous in the African-American community. The headlines often reported, you know, Ethel sees this, a very personal form of kind of journalism. But in the white community of Washington, getting a cab, going to the bathroom were just big challenges. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's not so different now, which is a scary part. It, it wasn't that. When I was on book tour, I can remember speaking to audiences in which um, I would describe her difficulty in getting a taxi cab in Washington. And, and all, uh, there would be black members of the audience who would say, yeah, well, it hasn't mm -hmm. changed now. You know, this is 40 right. years later. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you brought up one other interesting point, Jamie, and that is when you were writing the book, was your access complicated by the fact that you are white? Slightly. Um, I had to win over her friends and family, which one of the ways I did it is I wrote a Washington Post article about her that. Uh, got widely circulated. So they'd already seen how I was covering her. And so her friends became more and more willing to talk to me. And once one talked to me, another did. And that wasn't a problem. I ran into some institutional issues. Her papers exist in three different places, um, actually four different places. Library of Congress has them. Howard University has them. The Schoenberg Center in New York City has them. And Chicago has them. Schoenberg hadn't processed the papers. 
So I had to use some persuasive techniques to let them see the let me see the papers because archivists don't want you to see papers that haven't been organized or processed yet. I won on that battle. Library of Congress was easy, and the papers were. Uh, but I'm telling a story about Howard, so you get a sense of it. Howard University at this point stored stored most of its archives with a private company. Um, and they hadn't paid their bills recently. So the private company wasn't necessarily going to willing, willing to bring in the boxes to their archives. And so one of the major repositories of papers of African-Americans can't even afford at times to keep the lights on. And that's true all throughout the United States. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing this kind of scholarship is dependent on. And if other people, black or white, want to write about figures from the African-American past, they're going to be dependent on these underfunded archives that are struggling. And, um, and that was really a barrier for my work. I mean, I overcame it, luckily, but, uh, but that's a problem for anyone doing this kind of work. And in the end, the family was very happy with what you'd written, correct? What's left of the family was. They were the hardest to convince, um, but yes, they were very happy. They were... Um, and for me, it was a, a wonderful experience because as I traveled, I, uh, I always offered to go to high schools. I've been a high school teacher and uh, spent a whole day with these kids. And it was fascinating because, first of all, they're so polite. None of them would get around to asking me the big question, which finally I'd say, OK, you, the question you want to ask is, why is this honky writing a book <laughs> about this black woman? <laughs> and they'd, again, they'd giggle and get nervous because I was being fun of it. But I had a, a wonderful experience, as they did too, about talking about um, the freedom struggle, about Ethel Payne, and how you know both sides benefit from it. And can one write about somebody who's different from you? And we certainly turned to fiction to learn about the lives of other people. I mean, the reason why we read Richard Wright, if you're white, is you learn a lot about what it's like to be black. You know, you, Alan, as an agent, know how many leftovers of segregation exist in publishing. Um, the fact that most uh, books on African subjects, African-American subjects, have to be published in February, as if they don't deserve to be published in October. Yeah, you're right. Traditionally, publishers did those books in February because it's Black History Month, and there's a surge of reading at that time because of all the press that's going on in the country to support that month. But they've changed, and now they're tying those book releases to other dates. Mm -hmm. If I come into a publishing house and say, I want to write a book about a black person, the editor says, fine, that's a great idea. If an African-American walks in and meets the editor, the editor and says, I want to write a book about Woodrow Wilson or FDR, the thought bubble above that editor is, why aren't you writing about your own people? I know there's been a lot of change in recent years, and the publishers have become much more aggressive about diversity and hiring people and representing, but there's still enormous segregation when it comes to topics about Black Americans. I remember with disappointment how some of my better friends said to me, why is it you want to write a book for mm -hmm. Black readers? And I thought, this isn't a book for Black readers, this is a book for anybody. Some of these things are so deeply ingrained um, that it's institutionally ingrained from the archives being limited financially to the idea that you, uh, major presses still segregate their books within the company, still segregate them to a month of publishing. All of these things really still make it very hard. Uh, some of us uh, in our more humble moments realized that we didn't really write a great book wrote itself because the story is so good. All we had to do is get out of the way. And that was certainly the case with Ethel Payne. Yeah. You wrote an extraordinary book, Eye on the Struggle, Ethel Payne, the first lady of the black press. 
just to let everybody know, it received amazing reviews, extraordinary reviews, and was published by Amistad, which is a division at HarperCollins. And the book is beautiful, and it is absolutely worth reading. Just don't find the mistake on page 23. <laughs> oh, you don't oh now we're going to go there. look for it. Yeah. <laughs> Bookmark 23. Yeah. Thank you, Jamie. All right. Be well, Jamie. Thank you both. It was an honor and pleasure. Hang tight, and we'll be right back. So tell me, what did you think of the interview? I loved it. I really did. He, I thought I appreciated his, his honesty. Yeah, it was very touching. I, 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 was, I was moved by it, actually. Had you heard of her before? Yes. My, my parents used to read a, a lot of the black press back in the day when I was younger. And I remember the Chicago Defender being in the house. And I remember my parents always pointing out certain people to me in pictures and things like that in, in the magazines and in the newspapers. And she was one of them, yes. Well, what a maverick! Because and it opens. It, it's the, even the opening is so vivid. She was there for the signing of the Equal Rights Amendment, and she's there with President Johnson and Senator Dirksen and all of those guys in in that room, and then handed a pen by by the president and so forth after he signed. It, but you're there as you're reading it. You're you're right there. And as a child, I remember you know seeing the pictures in the in the newspaper. That president was Eisenhower. No, that was Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, okay, because Eisenhower was she had struggled with him, didn't she? Yeah, she had some issues with Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But that, but that was the fifties. Yeah, yeah God, of mm -hmm. course, definitely. Yeah. And then of course it chronicles nineteen fifty five, which was a giant year for the movement because it started in the summer with Emmett Till which we all know that horror. And then by December, we had the bus situation with in, in Birmingham, Alabama. With which, Rosa Parks. With Rosa Parks, which, of course, brought Dr. King to the forefront. And he heard of her. He brought her in. Yep, because she was already with The Defender and, and had been doing all, all, all that great work then. And the, the Defender was a weekly. And then when the movement started moving faster in the 50s, it became a daily newspaper. If I recall... What they did is before the train reached town, they would slide open the doors and they would throw the papers off the edge of the train. Yes. Because they would have been confiscated once they got into town. And then people from the town would pick up the, the papers uh, off the side of the tracks and distribute them. Mm -hmm. And then you go to our last summer and you see George Floyd, you know, it, it took out all the doubt because it, everyone got to see that where – these people were still fighting to get their word to out. To get the word out. Well, we live in a world now, if, you're, if, you, if you don't see it, it's because you don't want to see what's going on. If you don't want to hear it, that's because you don't want to hear it. Right. If you don't hear it, you don't want to hear it. The black press reported on, on, on all the lynchings and so forth. They kept a, a chronicle of all that because the, the general press did not inform on those Well, this issues. particular biography, don't you think – this should be required reading. Most definitely. To not know who she is and to not know her story is criminal. It denies all that she fought for, all that she created, all the movement that she was a part of. It denies it. At the same time, she is so representative of everyone. And she was sitting right there next to President Kennedy. You know, she dealt with Robert Kennedy as when he was attorney general. So much. She spoke to Mandela right after he was freed. I mean, so it, when you look at that, it's it's the it's almost the entire 20th century. Well, you had made a comment um, earlier to me about um, how important it is for black people to get familiarized with certain black figures in history and mm -hmm. and stories and books and, and things like that. 
don't you feel it's equally, if not more important for white people to do this? I think everybody should find out about these people. And I think everybody should learn about this history. I think if people need to see it, because we, we won't heal and get past this until everybody's on the same page. Well, I think history itself has not been very honest with any of us. No, which is why I always got in trouble because I always had to find out You'd the why. I was did. the why, but yeah, but why? That was me. So I would always find out and then challenge even with teachers and say, well, yeah, but you forgot about this part because so-and-so happened. Oh, I remember that in class. He'd stand <laughs> so up and challenge was, the teacher. Right, and so that was principal's always— Principal's office, we'd go because then I'd be backing him. <laughs> right. So All right, the two of you out of here. I mean, tell him the first time we met, when we first met, and how you came to our house, my family's house. We were seven years old. And yeah. Philip walked in, and everybody was picking him up, kissing I, I, him, I feeding was him, laughing. I, I was him. slapped, hit, kissed, pinched, <laughs> loved, hugged, fed, <laughs> drinks poured down my throat until I got to the other end of the room. And then I went back, and it happened all the way back to the front of the room. So it was great. It was a complete other world. It was a complete other world. I, I heard about six different languages as I was going through the room. Right. Mm -hmm. People talk about colorblind and they brag about it. Like, well, I was raised colorblind. Well, I wasn't, nor was Philip. We were raised colorful. So we saw everything about the person. And that's what we were attracted to. And that's what we embraced. But all the households were different when I'm thinking back. I would visit friends and, and each one was different. Totally. So, again, it's, it's about exposure. I think it's so much about it, if you're fortunate enough when you're growing up to be exposed. And embracing and embrace the differences sure. and the diversity. Uh, that allowed. is what makes it interesting. Yeah. Because because you, I was taught to fall in line. So when you came in, wherever that was, you fell in line. You didn't resist. You didn't ask, what is that? And I'm, what is They put it on your plate. You ate it. And if you enjoyed it, good for you. Right, and if you and didn't you like it, you didn't like and it. Then you moved on from there. Yeah, the, those yeah. The, those were those kind of you know rules, golden rules, growing up, and it, it allowed for a, a lot and, and and to see a lot, which is one which is kind of wonderful when you think back. It's the word of the year, really, the the embracing the diversity in this country yeah, because it's it everything from the politics to race to education. It, you, it, it, you can't put everybody in one box. No. no. And when you read the words of the founding fathers, it says that. Because when you well, say all men are created equal and you say these things, then you have to really mean it. And, if, and I think maybe we are now finally going in that direction. It does feel like there has been a corner turned. Yes. Doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. It really does. And a time to kind of exhale a little bit. And, and that young woman who, the poet laureate that spoke, yeah. I mean, yeah. shone a, a bright, bright light that, that there is a future here. And wow, isn't, and isn't it wonderful? Yeah. yeah. She was amazing. Beyond. Yeah. Well, on a personal note, I would just like to say my life's never been better since knowing you. Oh, well, thank you. And you know that. And I was seven years old. We both were. And mm -hmm. the fact that we could have the relationship we've had 
through our entire life. And it's, it has been our entire life. I mean, I'm not going to say how many years, but it's a long It's a long time. Well, you don't <laughs> always find someone that gets it. And, yeah. you know, and you know, I think my growing up, those first seven years, I'll say side-eye was probably the key word in um, my growing up because that was always – when you said Philip, it was usually followed by a side-eye. And so <laughs> <laughs> it was nice to meet Joey because that was the first time I didn't get it. And, and so I, he got it. And then his mother got it, and that and it, it has been that way the entire time. Yeah, we met in a playground. Philip was sitting on a seesaw by myself. Now you have to understand. I'm just <laughs> going to give you a quick little story here. Sitting in a seesaw, it was in the late fall, and he's sitting on a seesaw with, and he was impeccably dressed always. His mother was a stickler for his clothes and, and the way that he represented himself. So he was sitting on a seesaw with a Persian lamb hat, but a fez hat, you know, those ones that go to the side, <laughs> black Persian lamb with a gray, a gray cashmere coat with a black matching Persian lamb collar that matched the hat. And he was sitting on the seesaw with his hands folded. And I'm riding my bicycle in. <laughs> I had one of those ones with the handlebars and the banana seat or whatever that's Yeah, the thing. banana seat. And those, I remember that. Those streamers that came with yeah, the bell. Yeah, off like, your handles. Bing, yeah. yeah. And I rode my bike, and I think I had like a Gatsby hat to the side. Yes, and a vest. And a vest. Oh, All Lord, multicolored. Was... I mean, here, no, here no it came out of, out of the, you out might of the sky. Some. And I said, hi. And Philip just turned his head and looked at me and he went, hello. Just like that, as formal as you can be. And I said, why are you sitting on that all by yourself? I said, would you like me to get on the other side? It'll be much more fun if it goes up and down. He went, okay, if you like. And I got on the thing and we talked for hours. And that was my first, first best friend ever. And to this day, he still is. And that was and it. And it's been up and down ever since. Ever since. <laughs> but that was it. Not for us, but for the world. That was it. And, we had, and I had just come from here, from California. And so yeah. that, that was part of our of our discussion. Yeah, because we were talking about California and mm -hmm. all that stuff, and mm -hmm. and particles. Remember that? Yes, that we was our first picnic. picnic. <laughs> there was like little things when the tree fell into the cup, and we didn't notice. And then as we were drinking, all of a sudden, Philip looked down. And he went, "There's particles in my drink," and I went, <laughs> "Oh my God, there's particles in mine!" And then we convinced we were both convinced that we had been poisoned. Because we had such an imagination. Completely and then we went and we insane. threw up in the woods because we thought someone was trying to poison us. <laughs> it was just little oh particles God. falling from the yep. tree. So nothing has changed nothing in has all changed. these years. Nothing has changed. Drama Central. <laughs> Always. Always. Well, Philip, we're going to have to have you back. But before we go anywhere, I have a question I want to ask you. Who else do you think would make a good story? I mean, Ethel Payne is a great story. A story that should be told. In your opinion, and you, I know you do a lot of reading... What other stories are out there that you think are as worthy as Ethel Payne to be turned into either books or movies? Wow. Well, two pop off the top of my head. There was one about Stagecoach Mary, who was a former slave who was um, at, the, at her freedom. She befriended a, a woman, a white woman, who was wealthy. And uh, their friendship grew over the years. Um, Stagecoach Mary stayed to tend her farm, and um, the woman left and became a nun. Mary got in trouble where she was and ended up following the woman to the nunnery, where she helped with the garden and stayed with that woman for years. Mary had a bit of a temper, 
Um, she carried a gun all the time, and she punched people in the mouth. Anyway, <laughs> in wasn't Mon- she on the Wells Fargo thing? In, well, in Montana, when the where the woman was a nun, she became the postal person. Yeah, to keep her out of trouble, and she would run these routes. And she was the first female and the first female of color to run this to, in the postal service. And she was revered in this town. Uh, the entire town turned up when she died because she lived, I think she lived into her late 80s, but she ran the mail up into through her, her 70s and it, it was in the Wild West. And this I woman, love that. That's a great it's story. It's a great yeah. story. Was that a book that you read or was it? I just read about her at different Black History Month. So they they will do snippets. And of course, I so kinda, there's there's a biography. There's that a should biography, be and there's there's a story that should be told, and uh, and that's one. There's a, one Mary about Todd a, Lincoln's. Um, there's yes, Mary Todd Lincoln became friend. friends with a woman who was a freed slave, in the, while they were in the White House, and this woman helped her see her difference. She came from a slave owning family, and in Kentucky same town where I'm from. Mary he, Todd did. Mary Todd did, yes. And uh, she, um, it also helped change change the president's mind mm. about said peoples and things like that. And this woman also lost her son in the Civil War. Didn't she also help her through her pain? And then when they lost their young, one of their young sons to illness, she she helped with Mary and the mourning, because Mary was a bit high strung, as you know. I mean, it's famous that she had a bit of a, you know, personality disorder. And then um, the woman went on to make dresses for the senators and congressmen in Washington for a while after and was very for successful. Wives, not for the senators. Not for the senators. For the Only J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover ordered a few. But other than, <laughs> other than that. Well, Leslie Grant put it on her, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, Linda. Or what's her name? Lindsey Grant. <laughs> Lindsey Grant. Whatever her name is. But there's so many stories. There's a lot of stories out there. There's a, there's a lot of good ones. Well, I'm glad you joined us today. That was oh, well, fun. Thank you for and having me. This was a lot more blast. information. And, this was a lot. You've taught us a lot more, as you always do when we're together. Well, you know, it doesn't take much to make me talk, so there you go. <laughs> that was fun. It's totally fun. Well, I'm glad Philip came on. Yeah, but I, I enjoyed doing this whole episode. I thought it was very informative. Yeah, I did as well. And if you enjoyed our first few episodes, be sure and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We will post recipes, photos, links. We'll put up Jamie's book cover so that you can see it and know what you're looking for. Listen, we really enjoyed uh, reading the questions that came in. So please continue to send them. You can send them on Facebook. You can send them on Instagram or Twitter. Or you can email them to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. And we'll talk at you next week. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.